Welcome to ACP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. My name is Dr. Lottie Mulder, I'm the Director of Leadership and Empowerment at ACP, and I'm one of your hosts. Hey, everybody. My name is Kelly Swales, and I'm also one of your hosts. I'm an ASCP certified CLS in the executive editor of journals in the publications department at ASCP. So today we're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion strategies for the laboratory. And we have a few very exciting guests that I'll let introduce themselves. Hi, everyone. I am Lona Small and I'm a quality specialist at the Johns Hopkins Hospital Core Lab. I do a lot of process improvement. That's my jam. But also on the side, I am a coach, a consultant and trainer at Lab OPEX Training and Consulting. And I'm so excited to be on the panel today. Hello, my name is Marissa White. I'm a surgical pathologist um, here at Johns Hopkins as well. Uh, Lona Small taught me everything I know about <laughs> insurance. I was, <laughs> I was her resident when, um, we're not going to talk about how many years ago, but yes. So thank you, Lona. I'm also our Deputy Director for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion here at Hopkins. So happy She's to- a star here. <laughs> no, <laughs> star. Thank you. Hello, everyone. My name is Mohammed Abdelmonem. I'm certified ACV blood bank specialist and I'm the transfusion service and reference lab supervisor at Stanford Healthcare here in California. It's an honor to be with all of you today. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us today. Uh, before we get going, I've got a little bit of housekeeping to get out of the way. CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA, PRA, Category 1 credit. Physicians should only claim the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. All right, guys, well, uh, let's, let's get this party started. My first question is, why is increasing representation and equity in laboratory leadership and management positions so necessary? I probably could jump in and start by saying that representation matters. I am a co-host for Elaborate Topics podcast. I have so many things going on. And my co-hosts always say that representation matters. A lot of times when you see people in certain position that may be from the same group as you, you see the possibilities. A lot of times you may think that this is not for me. And then you see someone else who may be in the same group. You may have a handicap. You may be of a certain gender and you may think that it's not acceptable. No one will allow me. I'm not expected to be at the table. And just seeing that representation, it does make a difference. And it gives you that um, motivation and inspiration to actually go get it. I see everyone nodding. Yeah. (laughs) But but here's the thing. Podcast listeners don't hear nods. So do you guys have anything to add, Marissa and Mohammed? Yeah. Representation, Lona, you're absolutely right. Representation matters. And it's not just only representation at entry-level jobs, but at all levels, because you need to see individuals with similar backgrounds, similar experiences represented so that you can feel like you have the ability to become in that role. Along those same lines, diverse teams perform better. 
And we need diversity at all levels to make sure that we are maximizing our greatest potential at all levels, not only in entry-level positions, but also in leadership and management positions to ensure that we have diversity at those higher-level positions where we can ensure that we are bringing in different perspectives, different backgrounds. It's well-documented in the business literature that diverse teams perform better, and it's well-documented in the literature, in the medical literature, that diverse teams um, provide better patient care, have better patient outcomes. And if we translate that to the lab, that means better efficacy in terms of what we're doing and in terms of quality, like what Lona is an expert in, ensuring that we are providing the highest quality laboratory services that we can. But we need to make sure that there's diversity at all levels and not just at certain levels. And also promotes retention. When, again, seeing yourself represented and higher level leadership and management positions, if you see yourself represented, you'll want to stay because it seems like You have that visual that you have the ability to be in that position at some point at that institution. So you want to see yourself represented because that'll promote retention. And so we're not losing um, those individuals with different life experiences. We're not losing that richness that diversity brings into the workplace. I agree with uh, with Lana and Marissa. When you have diversity team, especially in leadership, everyone has their own input. Everyone comes from different backgrounds, and I think it's better they perform well. You know, it's also very important for to for uh, inspiration and courage, motivation for people to see. As an immigrant, I I came to the U.S. a few years back, and it's it was really hard to to see that you know representation of foreigner or of uh, immigrant in leadership. It was inspiring for me to find someone who came from the same background or at least from different background as a foreigner or immigrant, it gives you the courage. It, it makes you like to work as a team to, to reach the laboratory goals and to achieve a better patient care. Yeah, I definitely hear what you're saying, Marissa, about retention. I know I'm not obviously not going to name drop or anything, but uh, in the position I'm in, I've had the opportunity to have conversations with members of our organization that say, you know, yeah, I would love to progress the ladder, but yeah. there's nobody in leadership that looks like me. Yeah. You know, they're all white. They're all white men. I'm just not going to. So I'm going to have to move. I think that's really unfortunate because without a doubt across the board, every single person I've heard that from are amazing, amazing people that bring such a richness and depth to their position. And I think that's super unfortunate that those institutions are losing such talent. And from a practical perspective, retention is financially favorable. Oh, absolutely. Even if one wants to argue, you know, play devil's advocate, you know, why does diversity matters? Even if you're a naysayer, at the end of the day, retention is important financially. So you can't argue with the numbers. Yeah, it it costs a lot of money to train and develop a new new individual and then have them leave in two years. That's not effective. Yeah. So when we're thinking about increasing representation and equity in laboratory leadership, what are some of the common barriers that you come across and then What are some ways in which you have addressed them? Some of the barriers that we talk about a lot is that unconscious bias or where a lot of times people are not aware that it may be, I mean, all of us have unconscious bias. So in situations, there are barriers where it could be unconscious bias when it comes to gender. You may have some upbringing, religious upbringing or otherwise, and you may probably say, you know what, I'm open, 
but somehow unconsciously you're treating maybe someone with a different orientation, um, gender orientation, you probably won't treat them differently. Or ageism. You may have this bias that says someone who is at a certain age don't do well in certain job that is have a lot you need a lot of energy for or they're slower. So I'd prefer to hire somebody that's faster with computers. Implicit or unconscious bias can be a major barrier. And um, another maybe I could probably think of others. A lot of times when there's not enough representation, there are limited opportunities sometimes to just grow professionally. Limited opportunities for professional development because there's not enough opportunities for certain kind of groups. Because, of course, you're grouping people when it comes to when they're not in a diverse environment where you have all the groups represented. So you may have limited opportunities to grow. You may have limited opportunity when it comes to the hiring, because if there are challenges with representation, even in HR, your hiring pool may be limited. As a leader, your hiring pool may be limited because of the people who are being recruited. Those are some of the um, many other um, challenges, but I'll leave the floor open for my, my other panelists. But there's just a whole number of barriers that comes when there's not representation in leadership with um, diversity and equity. Yeah, I think Ilona, those are such great points. And I, I agree 100% that um, unconscious bias kind of seeps into many different spaces in the workplace, particularly when we're looking at individuals during the initial application process, but then also at the promotion level. And there are some strategies that, you know, we in pathology, particularly in the graduate medical education side of things have started to utilize that might translate well to the workplace as well. But there's been a shift from looking at just traditional metrics, i.e., you know, what grades did you get? Did you get a 90% or did you get an 80%? And using that as the sole metric for promotion or for um, acceptance into a program and looking at applicants and applicants to a program, whether it be a school or laboratory professional training, or whether it be for at the promotion level, looking at the candidates holistically, looking at what they bring to the table in terms of their life journey, what experiences they've had beforehand, what adversity they faced, looking at their research experience, whether they've worked in a laboratory before, um, just looking at the candidate holistically and, and not depending on those traditional, very objective metrics. Those test scores, for example, are, you know, as the literature has shown, there, there are some biases in these, you know, exams that are utilized often as a standalone metric for acceptance into a specific education program for what it's worth. I think the other barrier that we face in pathology is that individuals have different career pathways in pathology and being mindful of that and being good mentors to those individuals with respect to where they've been in their life. So for example, talking again from graduate medical education and pathology, we get applicants with very diverse experiences. So we'll get applicants that are fresh out of medical school that have never had a, a job in their life and they just were in school. Whereas we'll have other applicants that were, you know, a medical laboratory technician before, worked a whole career, and then are now coming into residency with that 
work experience. The mentoring that those two individuals that I just provided examples of, the mentoring that those two need are very different. The opportunities that those two need are very different. And so being mindful of the different pathways that our staff have to get to where they are and what unique needs they have in terms of what those life experiences have, I guess, called for. I agree with Marissa, the, the last point she's talked about, about customization of training and needs for applicants. I see one barrier that, that I see for leadership and laboratory is the target for application and applicants to when you are advertised for your promotion or for your leadership positions. I think there is a lot of other platforms that are known to be diverse, not just with, you know, undiverse platform or a channel to have your application there. And the customization needs for and the training that need to be provided for every applicant, everyone has different has different needs, the you know, and the, the different background. So knowing that you know there is no one size fits all, it's creating that toolbox and training that will be optimized to that specific applicant or you know leaders in laboratory considering their background. And I think that is that's also one barrier. Yeah. I think I want to jump back on um, just um, responding to um, especially um, what Marisa said about the career advancement. And I know especially in the the lab scientists um, arena, that becomes a problem when there's not a clear career advancement, like a career ladder. And I know a lot of people now are working on clear career ladders because one person may be promoted differently based on this is a nice person or whatever the biases are. So having a clear career ladder is going to be important. And then there's another disadvantage where there's a some areas have clear career ladders for the scientists. And then there are lab technicians like the phlebotomists and the, um, the processors, and they may go back to school and they may have opportunities to move into the lab as scientists, but there's nothing clear for them. And then you may find that there's a, usually a group of disadvantage, I would say disadvantage and advantage group that may be lab technicians or, or processors and the opportunities that maybe the scientists would get to grow, they may not get them. So providing career ladder and providing certain training, especially when it comes to unconscious bias, which I know a lot of times people will just go for us. We have something during um, like my learning that everyone would have to take, but really understanding what that is and how we can Yes, we do have it and we are aware of it. But what are we doing in practical ways to overcome those? I think there are opportunities for training where that is concerned. I kind of want to touch base on something Marissa had kind of brought up uh, because it kind of ties into my next question. Just in terms of getting somebody into a program or once they're working in a laboratory or once they're in medical school or once they're in residency, kind of looking holistically at them as a person and like their own personal barriers, like if they've got a family and they can't maybe work overtime or, you know, they've got a long commute or whatever. What is something that, or I guess what are things that say like educational institutions, like somebody's high school or college 
or even professional organizations like ASCP? What can these outside entities do to help promote sort of the DEI mindset into like our workforce? Yeah, I think tone setting is really important and expectation setting where the professional organizations, you know, have clear expectations of their members to promote and champion inclusion in the workplace so that the call for being mindful of inclusion comes from the professional organizations rather than single individuals. These efforts in this space are really, are much more meaningful when it comes from larger organizations that are positioned to set those expectations. So I, I think expectation setting is really important and I um, and creating a culture of inclusion at conferences. And that goes from anything such as, you know, availability offerings. You know, I know a lot of the conferences are now offering like hybrid offerings. And I think that really in, promotes inclusion in these organizations. Because not everyone has the financial means or the, you know, the bandwidth travel especially now in a post-COVID environment where we know how to use Zoom and different virtual platforms very easily. I think the other part is offering DI programming for those programs and institutions that don't have a robust DI structure, organizational structure in place, offering that programming such that individuals can take the off the programming that the professional organizations are offering and take that back to their home institutions and say, you know, well, this is what we have you know, discovered through ASCP, for example, you know, these are some things that we would like to have our staff view and, or, you know, participate in and utilizing those resources if they don't have the resources at home, at their home institution. Because the reality is that not every institution is going to have a robust DI structure at this time. I think we're all a little new to the space and pathology in particular. Yeah. I like that. And touching on that, I'm thinking of research and data collection that may be a professional organization. I know ACP is good at doing these research and um, doing surveys and then publishing those. So that would be great to even seek our current state, what's going on in different organization and what can we do better and even give pointers of how we could improve. And I know that in pathology, Mary says leading a lot of um, DEI um, initiatives across the country, recruiting people just to see what other organizations are doing and, and maybe best practices. So I think um, professional or organization can actually just lead this and have people who are uncomfortable because a lot of people are uncomfortable to talk about it. I know even in smaller settings, even in our labs, when they'll give pointers how to talk about it, but people are still uncomfortable talking about it because there's a lot of emotional baggage for all sides, for the disadvantage and the advantage group. People sometimes think that they are shamed or feel guilty, so they don't want to participate. So there's a lot that the professional organization can do to guide and just to get maybe resources or expertise from outside to even guide the professional organizations to help in this, I think would be great opportunity. Also, if, you know, if the professional organization are able to offer a CA credit or CME credit for DNI topics, I think, you know, as a laboratory professional, 
you know, we have a certification that needs to be renewed every two years or if you have, you know, a state license. I think that would be a great opportunity to offer that for for members to participate in it and uh, make it a culture, make a DNI as a culture and at the same time get the CA required for renewing their certificate. And I know we talk a lot about why representation matters in just lab, in the, just in the laboratory in general, but then also in those leadership and management positions. What about equity? Like, what are some of the specific benefits that equity has for those that would maybe directly benefit from equity, but then also everybody else? I suppose when I think of equity, one of the first thing that come to me is. Pay and promotion. <laughs> How do we do? Uh, what do we have in place when it comes to promotion? Who am I getting on with? Who do I feel comfortable with? Or is that a clear criteria for promotion? Are we increasing the pool when it comes to opportunities to promote people so that people feel as if the pay is equitable? What about like, I know now when it comes to like paternity leave, that's right now most people are getting it. But when it comes to gender, some people who are married to same sex, they may not get the same opportunity that other people get. So just looking at things like those and making sure that your promotion, your pay scale is really taken into consideration. Equity is very important. And of course, it goes back to retention. Like Marissa said, a lot of times, if you're in an environment where you're, you feel as if the equity is not there, the inclusivity is not there, then most times you're losing very, very good talent. And I think to touch on Lona, what your point is, I think it's important to take an objective look at where organizations or institutions are in terms of promotion, not only representation at each level, but rates of promotion and specifically meaning the time it takes for individuals to achieve that promotion. There may be disparities there and there may be opportunities for promoting equity there where Again, thinking of, you know, pathology GME, looking at, or graduate medical education, looking at how long it takes for a pathologist to progress from assistant to associate to full professor. In the literature, there are described disparities in the duration in which it takes for a female faculty member to achieve, you know, full professor, for example. Not only are there disparities in baseline representation, but then the time it takes for an individual, a female individual uh, to achieve that promotion is longer. So not only are they not represented, but also takes them longer to get there. So for promoting equity, we have to think about you know, we have to first understand what the problems are and where the opportunities for growth are before we can then create strategic opportunities for intervention. So for female faculty having faculty development programs, and that would be somewhat similar for management positions in a laboratory. If we notice that there are disparities in female representation, again, just using that as an example, since that's what's coming to mind, if we see that not only there are there are issues with female pr promotion in terms of representation, but then also it's taking them a very long time to get promoted. Then thinking about, you know, collaborating with other departments or other institutions or even national organizations to create a female career development program to ensure that they are getting the support that they need to achieve timely promotion um, and equitable promotion. 
Yeah, and then tying it back to what Lona said in the beginning, how much uh, unconscious or implicit bias plays a role into that as well. Absolutely, yeah. And then, yeah, and I think the yeah. the gender issue and and in, in leadership positions is, I think, especially glaring in all allied health professions, but that includes laboratory medicine, right? It's a female-driven p- profession, but then you look at the who the admins are, and it's men. I agree with you, Marissa. I think that's a very obvious marker that we can that we have to for improvement. Yeah. I think that's a that's something we can all improve on. Yeah, uh, Muhammad, do you have anything to add? So you know, I I agree with Lana, but to get the data and for for the implicit bias or the unconscious bias, it is it is there. We don't know about it. So without actually knowing how we do and why there is there is like you know a certain numbers of certain gender or race. In, in management position or they get promoted faster, then we have no step to take. So I think, you know, to Luna's point is when we have this data, it's just the starting point or the, our baseline to see where we are and getting the uh, policy and what, what other organizations do. A lot of other organizations, I see they have like DNI chief officer and they, they have the DNI committees and it is it is very strong DNI committee that the adaptive courses or the, the strategy that they have, when we make it available to other organizations, they don't have, they don't have to reinvent the wheel and the, the resource will be available to them. Yeah. I want to jump on something again when it comes to equity in case I don't have a chance to bring it up. And I love what I see some medical lab professionals are doing when it comes to culturally maybe patient care or culturally competent care when it comes to equity. I know Carlo Ledesma and he's working, I think through the association, he's publishing papers. So I think when it, when we have a diverse community in leadership, whether it's um, faculty, whether it's pathologists, whether people who can do research or even change the way we do things. I know Carlo is um, focusing a lot on gender inclusive lab medicine, talking a lot about affirming hormones when it comes to like transgender care and things like those. Those are just some examples. When you think of sickle cell, focusing on things like sickle cell and malaria and a lot of maybe disparities when it comes to healthcare, the labs still have a role, the lab leadership have a role when it comes to focusing on some of these testing. So um, I wanted to make sure we brought that up because I like to say the lab, you are an important part of the whole. Um, All those medical decision is not only made at a higher level, but we have a big influence when it comes to patient-centered care and maybe culturally competent care, I'll call that. But um, that's so important. And I know Marissa being a pathologist, I'm sure that there's a lot of decision on that side that we can do in lab leadership also, just having that representation. Yeah, I mean, the the story of EGFR just touches on that exactly, where we in the lab have been uniquely positioned for years to implement change, but it wasn't until, you know, conversations about 
um, diversity in medicine and equity and health, health equity in medicine and health disparities came to the forefront. Did you know pathology come back and revisit the conversation about EGFR and impacting real significant change in that space? So you're absolutely right. Yeah. So then what are, you know, really looking at underrepresented groups in laboratory leadership roles specifically are, what are some effective strategies for mentoring and supporting those groups that you've implemented? There's a concept called mentoring across differences, which I love. It's an effective tool to utilize to effectively mentor when the mentor and mentee have different life experiences or different backgrounds, where the mentee feel open in discussing things with the mentor. And even if the mentor has a very different life experience and doesn't quite and may not completely understand or have a full um appreciation for the adversity faced by the mentee, the mentor is still able to effectively walk that mentee through the situation and then help identify others that the mentee might benefit from working with. So for example, you know, Lona, you mentioned, you know, ageism, you know, generationally speaking, you know, a just again, just just saying numbers because I'm just thinking a 60-year-old has a very different life experience than a 40-year-old or a 30-year-old. How do you effectively mentor and bridge across that age gap? So there are some nice examples in the literature. There's a webpage offered by the Brigham that coaches mentors through mentoring across differences, being humble and as a mentor and recognizing that your mentee will come to you with a very different life experience, but you can still coach them through difficult scenarios and then identify others um, and build their mentor network. Because again, mentees should never just have one mentor. But that's something I really like, coaching, uh, mentoring across differences. I love that, Marissa. It actually reminds me of positive intelligence. And now I discovered positive intelligence several, several years ago. I'm a coach and now I use that concept to coach. And it's actually with positive intelligence, you can bring it into organization. So basically it's uh, developed by Shazard Shamin. You can find his book called Positive Intelligence and it's it helped in almost every life situation. So it's a way to use, he call it mental fitness, which is the ability to really deal with challenges in a positive mindset. So with that humility that you're talking about and being open as a mentor, it's very similar where everyone, whether it's the advantage group or the disadvantage group, they become aware of their own biases because the biases are on both sides. They become aware of some things that can be internalized or maybe some things that maybe become a trauma that we probably resolve. Um, there are examples that you may be in an environment in a different country where you're probably safe. I know some some country have classism and not racism. And then you move away and you're in a different situation, but you're still traumatized by that. So you work along with that mindset. But with positive intelligence and mental fitness, it helps organization to use the mindset. The, um, so, of course, we can teach all this stuff through concepts, but unless you can actually 
apply them when it comes to actually your mindset, then it becomes a challenge. So I love that example with the mentor mentee. Once they have the tools to use and they are very honest about where they are, there's not a lot of denial because I know with DEI, they tend to be a lot of denial on both sides, just an acceptance and just know how to handle those are really important. So training and coaches is important. About the mentorship program, also, um, I know ECB, we have, there is a mentorship program. It's not as robust as it should be. I think there is a lot of room to improve for on the mentorship programs, but I think it is a start. So if that can be done also in organization and institution, it will be, it will be great benefit. Some people, they want to start somewhere. They want someone there were in their place before, give them advice. And having the chance to choose your mentor, your mentor, and you know, to uh, someone you are comfortable with, someone you think they they will be good good advisor to you, they will be good mentor. I think the ASCB provides us with with a lot of criteria that you can choose your mentor or your your mentee um, on. And I think you know, having that to the ASCB members, it is it's a great benefit. So if other organization and other institution can adapt the mentorship programs, you know, in all, career, in, in, in all the career, it's not just for, you know, entry level, it's also for leadership. I kind of want to circle back a little bit to what you had said, Marissa, about use the EGFR as an example. And obviously, there are many other examples. Uh, what comes to my mind is, uh, say, melanoma on different colored skin yeah, or different skin tones. Mm-hmm. Um, how can laboratory leaders and pathology leaders ensure that their organizations as a whole, and then by extension, the profession as a whole, are kind of addressing these sort of systemic biases that we have in medicine? I know this is a big question. We can can make a whole series of podcasts just on that, but... Yeah. I mean, I think getting out of the labs is really important, first and foremost, and inserting ourselves into multidisciplinary conversations. Um, so not just being behind the scenes as, you know, laboratory professionals, here is your lab result, period, end of story. No, we should be at the internal medicine, you know, or we should in meetings, we should be at surgical meetings where we're looking at blood utilization. So we have broader committees that have pathology representation here at Hopkins um, to ensure that pathology is considered number one, but then number two, it gives us an opportunity to identify any opportunities for mitigating health disparities. So one of the things that we're currently in the process of talking about is, you know, formally including health disparities and health ec- and promoting health equity as a quality metric, Lona, <laughs> awesome. um, in, in pathology. And one of the things that we were thinking about is that, you know, we have a large patient population with HIV and looking at how we can make sure that those individuals are getting their test results in a timely and efficient manner and in a way that is appropriate for that patient population, you know, being mindful of, you know, not everyone has internet access, not everyone has access to their EMRs. Are they getting their lab results effectively? So, you know, going to the, the directors of those clinics and talking with them and finding out what are their barriers that they face with the laboratory and what can we do to help overcome those barriers to improve overall patient care. So I think just getting out of the labs and being present in those conversations and have, approaching those conversations with a curious mind and thinking about, you know, what can, how can we use our lab services to better, to improve patient care? 
it makes me start thinking about um, just outreach programs, even right. other than just within our hospital, but going into communities. So that triggered that for me, develop relationship with diverse communities, um, communities that may be maybe disadvantaged or minority focused, understand the education institutions, understanding their challenges and seeing what we can do to support them. I know that going out into different school system to have, and I think I'm kind of moving away from that when you talk about the outreach, but when you think of going out to different um, universities and so on to even understand their challenges of why is it that I'm not getting a job at Johns Hopkins or what are some of the challenges I'm facing and try to figure out ways to remove some of those barriers or even to support them, I think is, is a great idea when it comes to like just moving out of the walls of the lab. What are some potential challenges or pitfalls when promoting representation and equity in, the, in laboratory leadership? And how, what are some strategies that leaders can implement to avoid them? The thing that comes to mind first to me is that these efforts should be led by those members of the underrepresented communities or the underrepresented individuals, that these efforts can be championed by allies and can be championed in a very effective way. So avoiding what we call like, you know, quote, the majority subsidy or the minority tax where individuals of the underrepresented community need to be responsible for promoting, for increasing their representation, where it should be the other way around. That's the thing that comes to mind first for me in terms of a of a pitfall is the assumption that allies can't lead these efforts. They can, allies are incredibly effective in this space and are critical. Mohammed, do you have anything to add? You know, the some of the barriers that come to my mind, it is, you know, recruitment. The recruitment is if you don't have a good recruitment for the leadership in the laboratory, it's kind of like people are not going to even apply because when you see it on, on the application or in the promotion, there is no clear expectation and people will feel this is not for me. I'm not going to even you know bother to apply for it. The other thing that comes to my mind when it comes to the barrier for the uh, leadership in laboratory. Here at Stanford, we have... We, we built diversity inclusion in the laboratory, not just in the hostel. So the hostel has, has a committee for the diversity and inclusion. Among the lab, we have our own uh, diversity and inclusion committee, and it, we, we try to make it inclusive. So we have laboratory professionals, we have uh, pathologists, we have medical directors, we have phorbotomists. It represents all the group in the laboratory, also among other, you know, genders and race and uh, color and nationalities. So having giving the opportunity for for people to participate and feel they are their opinion is valued, their voice matters. It helps a lot with with our recruitment in the laboratory. I can say here we we are very diverse. It's like people will not. There is no dominant race or dominant gender. It's like it's all diverse, and it's it come with a lot of effort from the from the leadership that, that for you know as far as you know the committee the the, the organization itself. Alona, awesome. awesome. I think for me, I think a lot of times 
some of the pitfall is that when people hear about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and a lot of times they tend to just narrow it to a one group. And so because of that, you may find that you may over, there's some like overcompensate. So then you're excluding in the process of trying to be inclusive, you may end up you're excluding some group and just being aware that we all fall into the minority group at some point. Because if you list in equity, when you think of all the different things like disability and um, age and gender and race, and at some point, we all fall into some group that may not be the advantage group. And so in that effort to balance, sometimes it becomes imbalanced. So I think that's something to consider because that could be a pitfall, you know, when we're trying to think of inclusion and equity. Um, and especially for me, I'm into projects. So when you think of teams, I think of different expertise. So when you're having diverse teams, even within the lab, yes, perspective, but expertise. And a lot of times we may have bias when it comes to if you're not a medical lab scientist, you can't think like me. You're you're not scientific, but it's not just the science. We need the arts. We need the creativity. We need so much that's going on among us. So I think just being more open when it comes to DEI is so important because we could go the other way. I want to, I know we're kind of bumping up on the edge of our time here. And I do want to pick up on something though, that Muhammad had mentioned about recruiting. What are some strategies that we can do to identify and then recruit a more diverse pool of job applicants? Some of the organization already started like removing names from resumes and have an applied review for the for the application. Like when you submit a research, it's the same way. You just people don't know who's applying, what is their name and what is their where, where they come from. So I think that is that is one way of recruiting that I, I see in other organizations now. Yeah, that's really interesting because that kind of removes one step of your implicit bias, right? If you're biased against men or biased against immigrants or what have you, that just removes it. Absolutely. And on a broader level, I think pathway programs are really important, just expanding the the numbers of individuals that are considering a specific career. So for us here at Hopkins, we work with the community, with the Baltimore City community through a summer jobs program. And there's a local scholars program for high school students. So reaching back early to, you know, fortify the pathway into our pathology profession and expand that uh, as, as much as we can, waiting to reach out to these students when they are already in college or graduate school, it, it's too late. You have to reach out earlier to the high school students and really spark their interest in pathology first and reach them early and support them and nurture that and nurture that interest, cultivate that interest um, and be there every step of the way rather than waiting until, you know, they're already in graduate school and the ship for pathology has already sailed. Similar to what Mohammed was saying, um, I think even with the job description, sometimes the way it's written, sometimes it could deter a certain groups of people from 
applying for the job. So just looking at the language, um, just how you write your job description, how you write your ads, outreach, and just partnering with just different groups that already in the recruitment business of hiring in diversity, um, like diversity focused organizations and so on, I think would be a good thing. And I know we already mentioned training um, would be great, um, just training people in the whole hiring process, because a lot of times we're training the leaders, we're training everybody else, but we are not training people because HR are the trainers, so make sure they are trained when it comes to um, the whole hiring process and so on. And I know that it's not easy to track metrics and so, but I think if we can identify good metrics to see how we're doing, I'm a quality person. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, just um, identify metrics and track to see if we're actually making headway when it comes to having a diverse pool of job candidates. Awesome, you guys. This has been such a great conversation. I know our listeners are going to love it. Again, thank you so much for joining us. I just want to tell our listeners to tell your colleagues about the podcast and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And you can receive CME and CMLE credit for listening to our podcast by looking for Inside the Lab in the ASP store on our website at www.asp.org.